everybody. Welcome to Let's Talk Public Service, a podcast for UVA law students who are interested in public service. I'm Annie Kim, and I'm your host today. I sat down last week with Jeree Thomas, a 2011 graduate of a law school who's had a fabulous, wide-ranging career working in juvenile rights and advocating for incarcerated Black youth. Jeree started her career as a Scadden Fellow, doing direct legal services work, and now she serves as a senior program officer at Borealis Philanthropy. So I wanted to start out by asking you if I could about your current position at Borealis Philanthropy. We were just talking about that before the interview. I'm so fascinated by how you're able to do work uh, with the grassroots organizations, but also from a very high level systemic point of view. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm currently the senior program officer for the criminal justice initiatives at Borealis and I lead our Communities Transforming Policing Fund. It is the only fund in the country that is focused on supporting grassroots organizing and policy work specifically around um, combating police violence. And the fund launched in 2017. I joined um, in, 2000, in September of 2019. And it is such a privilege and particularly in this moment in time I've learned such a tremendous amount um, from the groups that we have the privilege to support and resource. Um, so in my current role I provide um, support to groups that are doing grassroots work across the country around policing and I also provide capacity building support to those groups so helping to identify what needs they might have um, and connecting them, um, creating peer learning space and opportunities for them, um, identifying other resources that they might need as an organization and trying to make sure they have that. So for example, in this moment when everything has turned digital, um, many of the groups have asked for digital security support, right, to make sure that their meetings aren't Zoom bombed or that their information isn't um, unfortunately sort of under attack and so we've identified folks that are going to support grantees in, in that way so a lot of the work is around um, resourcing supporting um, and really trying to help those organizations grow to continue to do really great work that is so fascinating so you mentioned just now police initiatives capacity building and learning communities what kind of police initiatives are you helping organizations with so the organizations that um, that we support are specific are specifically trying to end um, violence, um, police violence in communities. Um, they're looking at how to shift power and resources um, from policing in the carceral state to communities. Um, they're trying to develop. Uh, transformative justice alternatives um, to policing into the criminal justice system overall. And so we try to support and connect those groups together so that they can learn about things that could be implemented in their own communities. That's really cool. And then capacity building, does that mean helping them to build out infrastructure or have more contacts nationally? What does that, what does that look like? Yeah, so it, it looks like a couple of things. So we have, we work with consultants who support in their organizational development. So really thinking about what do they need as an organization to become more stable, right? To become more financially stable, to become um, sort of, to, to make sure they have good policies and practices. So we provide uh, funding and support just for that. Um, we also provide capacity building in terms of developing their own campaigns. We, um, I have the pleasure of working with Andrea Ritchie, who is a, 
30 plus year policing expert attorney um, who works with groups and specifically on developing their campaign strategy. Um, and also we coordinate on trying to create peer learning space so that organizers from across the country can come together and talk about strategies that they're seeing in their own localities um, and try to really think through potential solutions. So it's, it's, um, it's definitely, it's incredibly, uh, really a privilege for me to, to see the work that's happening now and, and hopefully um, see how things transform as a result. That is really neat. No, I, I love it. So I am wondering, this is really different from the kind of work that you started out doing. So you were a Scanned Fellow and you were working at Legal Aid Justice Center. Can you tell us what that was like? What kind of work did you do? Yeah, so I, I started my um, career out at the Legal Aid Justice Center, um, focusing on young people who um, had special education needs and were either, well, either in the community and school and having trouble um, or incarcerated in a youth prison. Um, and so I really focused primarily on kids who also had the juvenile justice um, contact. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's funny today, October 1st is the start of Youth Justice Action Month. And uh, that is a month that, cele well, that celebrates um, or really highlights the importance of youth justice in our country. Uh, it was actually started 15 years ago or so, um, or I guess a little less than that, by a mother in Missouri whose, um, whose son was prosecuted as an adult, and she wanted folks to understand that that happened to young people who were not yet 18. Um, and so she held a, a, the first Youth Justice Awareness Month event. Um, and the organization that I used to work for made it a national event in, in 2016, or it might have been 2015, uh, President Obama declared it National Youth Justice Action Month. And so um, happy, uh, happy National Youth Justice Action Month to, to you all. Oh, how um, but yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that's when you were working at the Campaign for Youth Justice, is that right? Yes. So yes. you made a shift then. So you started out doing, sounds like, direct juvenile um, justice defense work for kids who are incarcerated. Uh, and then you shifted to this role for Campaign for Youth Justice. Was that a shift totally from direct services to policy work? And when did yeah. you decide to do that? Yeah, so when I was at Legal Aid Justice Center, I was representing clients, um, you know, on special education administrative type of work, but also um, post-dispositional work around the serious offender review hearing hearings here in Virginia, so representing kids in court as well. But even during that time, I was doing local policy, local and state policy advocacy, um, and, and providing public education and lobbying related to, to bills that impact young people here in Virginia. And so the transition to the campaign for youth justice actually was, it was, it was pretty smooth in part because when I was a student at, at UVA, um, I actually had worked on a campaign, um, on a campaign to try to address um, young people being tried as an adult here in Virginia um, that was supported by the campaign for youth justice. So, oh, wow. um, it, you know, I always tell students in particular that it's really critical to make relationships early um, when you're a student because it's a very small public service world and you will find yourself as I have working with people who I met in law school like over and over again <laughs> over and over again okay, so great. yeah. Was that part of the child advocacy clinic or a class? 
So it was when I was a summer, I was a summer uh, intern with, um, or summer fellow with Just Children. Um, yeah. I believe that was in, yeah, in 2009 or so. And, uh, and they were running the um, Don't Throw Away the Key campaign, which was supported by the Campaign for Youth Justice. I see, I see. So what kind of policy work, what were some typical things you did when you were at Campaign for Youth Justice? So the Campaign for Youth Justice really focused on trying to end the prosecution, sentencing, and incarceration of youth under 18 in the adult criminal justice system. So the work that I really focused on as the policy director was supporting um, local and state advocates across the country that were trying to pass laws to prevent young people from being um, put in adult court or held in adult jails and prisons. And the biggest campaign um, as a part of the campaign for youth justice was with what was called Raise the Age. So there are still states in our country, um, fortunately now only three. Um, I think when the campaign started, there were 14, but three states that automatically treat young people under 18 as adults, no matter what they do, no matter what type of offense they commit. Yeah. Um, and so the work of the Campaign for Youth Justice initially was really to try to stop that, to make it so that there was at least, <laughs> the 18 was at least considered the, the you know, minimum age. Um, but, but yeah, there were states like North Carolina and New York that a few years ago automatically treated all their 16 and 17 year olds as adults, no matter what they did. So the school to prison pipeline in those states in particular was, was very real because you could be 16 in school and do something and you could be tried as, as an adult um, for a school-based offense. That's crazy. And there's so much mandatory reporting that comes to schools as well. So you have a huge influx of kids just going to jail. Wow, wow. So I'm curious to know, what kind, would you miss any aspects of direct services work? I know there must be trade-offs in all of these different positions, but I'm wondering what you find really rewarding on the one hand with the policy type of work you've done at Campaign for Youth Justice in your, in your current job you know, versus mm -hmm. the direct services work. Yeah, so I think what I've learned is that all, for me, the most rewarding part is it's all about relationships um, and the relationships that you get to build with different people. And I've found that peace in every job that I've had, thankfully. Um, you know, with the, with the direct service work, it's, it's a very special direct contact, right? That you, when you're working with an individual young person or with families, and it's very powerful. Um, it's also, it also can be very heartbreaking, right? Because at the end of the day, like, and, and at least in my experience, I could help on, you know, one particular topic that I had expertise in, but the reality is that there are so, there are much bigger forces and systems that, that tend to work against uh, young people and, and others, unfortunately. And, and so I felt myself feeling a little frustrated because I was like, okay, well, I could help this one person or these few clients, but like, this is a bigger issue, right? And so I think that was one of the reasons why I transitioned into um, policy work, wanting to just, you know, for, for me, especially with the campaign for youth justice, just wanting to see the front door closed in terms of trying young people as adults altogether, right? Like, it, I just was, was, you know, it was just upsetting to see those individual um, situations. And so it's definitely, I think it's definitely that trade-off of like the very, um, the very personal sort of direct conduct. But to me, 
if you think of it in terms of relationships, there's there's ways to make to create that opportunity and and lots of different careers and and definitely in the policy work as well. Right. right. Do you feel like you did it in the sequence that you would have liked starting out doing individual representation and then doing policy, or would you do it the other way around? I absolutely am so glad that I started by doing direct representation first. I think it's really, really critical that folks get direct experience. If you, for example, and 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 my in the field that I was in, if if you had not been a young person who had been incarcerated, um, then you need to at the least work directly with young people who are incarcerated in order to make the policy around it. That's how I feel. I think that you learn so much about the like the intricacies of of how policy actually works in practice and where the gaps are, where the unintended consequences are. I think I was, as a, because I'd done direct service work when I became a policy director, I was very clear that ultimately what mattered to me was what actually happened in reality, what actually happens when this law is implemented or this policy is implemented, because those things can look very, very different, right? And so I always encourage people please, please, please do direct service work um, first, if you can, in the area that you want to do policy work in. Yeah, I know that's great to hear. That makes so much sense. You know, you mentioned the issue of emotional toll, and I think that self-care and secondary trauma are really important issues that we probably don't talk enough about these days, although there's more conversation. Do you have any tips for students that could be in clinics or doing internships or thinking about a whole career? How do you set yourself up to be strong and to take care of yourself so you can have those good relationships with your clients? Yeah, you have to have some way to, to take care of yourself, whether that's through exercise or reading or, or some other hobby that allows you to have a bit of a of relief uh, and to recharge yourself because absolutely it is very, it can be a lot emotionally and the reality of the intersections of you know all the different isms right of racism of sexism all, all of those things which um both impact our you know your clients but also can impact you as a as a professional um you do have to find ways to have an outlet um so i strongly encourage people to find whatever it is that that helps them in terms of self-care i I myself, I like to exercise in the mornings. I've been doing that since I started um, started out in my career. And so, yeah, finding that is is critical because it's very easy to burn out um, if you don't have an outlet of some sort. Yeah, and that's so important. It's great to have that in your schedule. And so you, you, you might have alluded to this just now, but do you think it's especially hard on people of color? Or people who, who are not, you know, have multiple ways in which they are not of the majority. I mean, is it harder as a public interest lawyer trying to then deal with those things in your own life as well as the harm to your client? Yeah, yes. I mean, it, it absolutely is. You know, uh, as, a, as a Black woman going into juvenile prisons and mostly seeing um, Black kids that look like my nephew and nieces and my brother and like it is it's extremely hard and I think it does make it does make the weight of the work all the more um, all the more pressing and and real and urgent um, and so 
there there is that piece there is definitely that piece of it and that's just more of a reason why it's important to to also center healing um and and healing justice right like it's it becomes really important yeah. and one of the really cool things you did at campaign for youth justice was um youth arts programs can you talk a little yes. bit about that yeah, so I had the pleasure of working with um, artist and activist Mark Strangquist and Trey Hart. Um, I get, I'm trying to believe, I'm trying to remember when we first met. It's been many, many years, but I remember that Mark uh, came to Just Children, and and I I spoke with him about this idea of you know how do we make it clear that young people who are incarcerated like they're more than just a number, right? Like. Oftentimes, unfortunately, um, young people who are incarcerated are really dehumanized and because they're behind bars and people can't necessarily see them or hear their stories, they can't appreciate the fullness of their humanity and of their potential. And so the idea behind the Performing Statistics Project, um, which is now its own organization, um, was that we wanted to have young people who had contact with the, the juvenile justice system to be able to speak for themselves around what what would help them what what could help their community what what could um, be and how could they be invested in so that we could create a world where they didn't have to be uh, youth prisons and so um, so we launched this project we talked with the folks at the the, um, the Richmond Juvenile Detention Center, and they were open to us during the summer having young people leave the detention center and come to an art space to uh, to work with, with us on an, a whole host of different projects um, where they got to learn different artistic skill sets. We actually got to go to a recording studio um, and, and they recorded PSAs about their experiences with the School to Prison Pipeline. Um, we did, they just did a whole host of things. They did screen printing, so they learned how to like screen print a t-shirt with, um, with an image that they had drawn and logos that they created. And um, actually, even once I left Legal Justice Center and went to the Campaign for Youth Justice, um, we remained connected and they actually developed um, t-shirts for Youth Justice Action Month. And so their t-shirts traveled across the country. I think one of my proudest moments was in 2018, I went to an event in Iowa and there was a young person on the panel in Iowa who had been tried as an adult. And because he was uh, speaking, I brought him a t-shirt that was made by young people in Richmond <laughs> from the Richmond Detention Center. And the first thing he did was put it on. He was so excited. He was like, oh, this is so cool. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I, that project in particular, just being able to make sure that young people's voices were at the center in terms of what they needed and what they wanted, and then also being able to share that across the country was incredibly rewarding. It's still going strong. If folks are interested in learning about the Performance Statistics Project, um, I encourage them to, to, look, to look into it. That is so it. amazing. And I bet those kids are so talented and so yes. resilient. And the stories they have to tell must be both heartbreaking but amazing. Like that, I love that so much. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you to close and close with two kind of practical questions for students. One is about the Scadden Fellowship process, because for many, that is something that obviously is so prestigious and so powerful, but it's also very scary and intimidating <laughs> because it feels 
like it's competitive on, on every front of it. How did you mentally prepare yourself and go through that, knowing that it's just a very, you know, different kind of job search process? What, and what tips did you have for students about that? So I think I really spent my career and, and coming into law school, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to do youth, youth justice work. Um, I developed relationships very early on and throughout my, um, my time at UVA Law with folks who were doing youth justice work. Um, and then when I applied, I very much wanted to apply with something, um, doing work that I had actually got a chance to do through the Child Advocacy Clinic and so could speak very directly about like, you know, here's a client that I had and it here's what they experienced and why I want to do this work. Um, putting your passion on the page is the most important thing. And then in preparing for the, the interview, I, I remember I, I am not... A, a person who's really great at, um, at talking about um, myself all the time, but I knew I could talk about my clients and I could share my passion through that. And so I knew the types of questions, um, thanks to the Public Service Center and, and others, I, I knew the types of questions that I was going to be asked. And so what I did was I prepared with a, a related anecdote of an experience that I had working with clients or doing other community work. I prepared each question with an answer that connected to that. And do and in doing that, like it really became much easier and much more of a conversation when I had the interview because I could talk for days about the young people that, that I worked with. Um, and so I encourage people to just, you know, to just remember that and center center their passion for the work and what really brings them to it and to, to bring that to your proposal and to, um, and to your interview. Um, I know that when I applied, um, one of the other things to do was also to be in contact with alums who were doing similar Scatton projects, as well as just any Scatton fellow who, who's done the work. I, I strongly encourage people to do that. Um, when I applied, one of the first people I called was um, Amy Walters, who graduated the year, graduated a couple years before I did and had gone to Scatton. Um, and she was doing very similar work to what I wanted to do. And so talking with her, she already knew me from law school, but talking with her more about the work and, and, pre and, and prepping was incredibly helpful, along with the many other uh, UVA Law Scatton fellows who I got to talk with. And so very much encourage um, students to utilize the network um, of the alums to to support and to cheer you on and to, to prep. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I love the idea and, and how you put it so well of centering the client, centering the passion, and that helps you to advocate for yourself. And it's not really about yes. you anymore. That's such a successful strategy. And then I guess in closing, you know, a lot of students are interested in youth justice or they're interested in racial justice broadly and they don't really know how to plug into that. Do you have any ideas for ways in which especially 1Ls and 2Ls can get involved if they don't have a lot of background? Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting because in this world where a lot of things are more and more virtual, it, it both, you know, precludes you from doing things like going to, to lots of conferences and getting to meet people who are doing a, a lot of different work, but it also opens the door to actually learning quite a bit through virtual webinars and things. And so there's a, there's a ton of really powerful 
learning happening um, virtually. And I encourage people um, in terms of folks to follow on social media and to learn about and to go to their webinars. Um, Andrea Ritchie uh, is incredible. She wrote a book called Invisible No More that is about um, the intersections, um, particularly how women of color impacted by policing. Um, Mariam Kaba, who, who's done some incredible work um, around transformative justice and, um, and abolition. Um, so there's, there, there's an opportunity, I think, in this moment to start by just learning, learning about what you're interested in. There's so many incredible resources, and I'm happy to share more with you, Annie, after um, that, that students can plug into. And then hopefully in the very near future, as, as opportunities provide um, for folks to come together, um, and for, for folks to work together um, in person, I think you can take that, that knowledge um, into doing some, some great work. It was so much fun talking with Jeree. I want to thank Jeree and thank you guys for listening. Until next time. <laughs>